Welcome to Bite Size Jazz, a podcast with a taste of new albums and new artists, with new episodes coming out every Tuesday. You can stay up to date with the latest interviews by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also check out our website, bitesizejazz.com, where we have links to each individual musician's website and a link to our Bite Size Jazz playlist. You can find the songs that are featured on each episode. I'm Stephanie Steele. Thanks for listening to Bite Size Jazz. Our guest on the podcast today is a drummer, band leader, composer, and now author, Ulysses Owens Jr. He teaches at the Juilliard School of Music, and he's played with many great musicians across the jazz scene. That includes Christian McBride, Wynton Marsalis, Kurt Elling, and Nicholas Payton, and that's just naming a few. But he's also considered one of the greats himself, and one of his latest projects is with his Ulysses Owens Jr. Big Band. Now let's welcome him to the show. Hi, I'm Ulysses Owens Jr., and I'm so happy to have just released my new album, big band album, Soul Conversations. Thank you so much for joining me here on the podcast. It's been so great listening to your album, and I'd like to start with some of your originals that you have on there, specifically the title track, Soul Conversations. I'd love for you to walk through your creative process and how you went about writing that tune. So, um, you know, it's important for people to understand that the, the, the UOJ big band is really an evolution that started from uh, a project I had about maybe seven, eight years ago, and that's called the New Century Jazz Quintet. It's a band that I formed with my co-leader, my Kiyodai, which is Japanese for brother, uh, Takeshi Obayashi, who's an incredible pianist. So Takeshi and I formed this quintet. It was really to be in tribute to bands like Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, uh, Roy Hargrove and, and Mulgrew Miller, Terrence and Donald Harrison, and, or I should say Terrence Blanchard and Donald Harrison, and just really like a nod to the tradition. And at that time in Japan, uh, a lot of the traditional sound of jazz was not really being presented by young bands. Um, so Takeshi and I had the idea to do that. So we formed the New Century Jazz Quintet, which featured Tim Green on saxophone, Benny Benak on trumpet, Benny Benak III, let's just say on trumpet, uh, Yasushi. Nakamura on bass. So we toured all over Japan. It was like, you know, we have, we, we, you know, get a van and travel, be there for two weeks. And then towards the end of our time, we did this for about four years. We even started a jazz camp there called the Seiko Jazz Camp, sponsored by Seiko Watches. I say all that to say that a lot of the material that we created um, is kind of what I'm trying to keep alive uh, in the big band. And the first big band was actually the Ulysses Owens Jr., uh, and New Century Big Band, where we took a lot of those tunes. So uh, Soul Conversations is actually from our final album uh, with New Century Jazz Quintet, which is called Soul Conversations. Um, and that is the title track that I actually wrote with Takeshi Obayashi. He and I wanted to write two tunes together. And so he came over to my house. At that time, I was living in Washington Heights uh, in, in New York. And he's like, he calls me, uh, you know, Bimchan. And uh, and so are Yuli Chan. And uh, and so he's like, Yuli Chan, we got to write, you know, this this music. So we go into my studio or my you know office slash studio. And so I just start playing this groove with brushes like, doom, doom, cha, 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 you know, and uh, and then he was like, uh, man, I like that. And he kind of like comes up with this bass line. And I was like, man, I like that. And I was like, what about like, cha, 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 cha. You know, so I keep doing that. And so he's like, all right. And then next thing I know, you know, we we got ready for rehearsal because we would always have a rehearsal to just to like go over every over everybody's tunes. 
And uh, man, Soul Conversations was born. So now fast forward, um, my manager told me after we had done, we've been playing Dizzy's for probably about three years. He said, Ulysses, I know you're getting ready to record. I just want to give you a little bit of advice. You need to put more original music on your album. So I think at that time I only had Red Chair. I was like, really, I'm really insecure about my, my music. He's like, Ulysses, you're a great, you know, you're a great composer, like put more stuff out there. So I was like, what are some tunes that I loved on other projects? And I thought about Soul Conversations. So that's what happened with that. And then when we were talking about album titles, I had a bunch of different titles. Um, and ironically, Soulful was like a part of all of them. And then I thought about like Soul Conversations. I was like, man, I think that'd be a cool title. You know, I've always like had these like ethereal titles. So I was like, I'm gonna just do something like straight up, just like, easy is no like you know it's not something you got to think about just soul conversations and so there we have it that's the long answer <laughs> interesting you mentioned you wrote the tune with Takeshi Obayashi yeah do you feel like it's easier to write with another person or on your own absolutely for me I mean I'm a drummer so with being a drummer I find that you know the three different aspects of music is rhythm harmony and melody and as a drummer we have a, a, a heavy advantage I think to rhythm because that's what we deal with primarily but it also means some of us not all of us um, but can sometimes not have a, a, a bigger grasp on melody and harmony. For me, I have a really good grasp on melody. I can sing melodies. I can write melodies very easily, but it's very hard for me to write harmonies. So I work with a lot of partners when I write compositions because they help fill in the harmony piece of knowing, you know, what's the right chord to pair with things. Cause I, I can hear what it should be, but I can't always identify like what it should be. So um, yeah, absolutely. I, I've, I've had great writing partners through the years uh, Takeshi's one of them. Another is Mike Catone. Benny Benak has also been been very helpful uh, to me as well. And, and many other great musicians that have been very kind and gracious uh, and patient because sometimes my writing process is, you know, me singing into this thing. Um, and, you know, like Benny always has the joke. I like woke him up one night, you know, like via text at like one in the morning. It's like, Benny, I got this melody. And I'm like, you know, screw, you know, like, you know, yelling into the voice memo, this melody and this groggy voice. And uh, out of it, we got a great tune. So <laughs> I so love it. It works. Yeah. It's nice how you can just record it so quickly on your phone. Like yeah. That yeah. Because, you know, someone gave me some great advice many years ago about composition. They said, you know, Ulysses, don't put unnecessary pressure on yourself and um, don't don't force yourself to be good at something you're not good at. And I said, well, what do you mean? And they said, well, if you feel like you can't come up with chord changes or you can't really, you know, come up with melodies, like whatever your challenge is, focus on what your advantage is. And so if it's a melody that, you know, or lyrics, like record that and then like build a team around that. So that's kind of how I started writing many years ago is just singing things into my, my voice memos and then getting the right people I trust. Um, and then a B in the chords and them saying, all right, cool. Like, I think, you know, this major flat five should go with it. But here's another sound. I'm like, no, that sound. So 
I think it's important to work with people who have strengths in areas that you have weaknesses. Um, because for me, it's not about ego. It's about just getting the best product and the best song out there for people to enjoy. And I think it can help to have a second pair of ears on something just to get that Absolutely. fresh perspective. And that it keeps your music fresh too. Absolutely. But it has to be somebody that you trust. You know, I mean, Takeshi and I um, have built up such a trust and he also knows like how I like to hear music and how I like to play music. So when people really understand your musical identity, the collaboration can be a reflection of that as opposed to someone who really doesn't understand who you are. And then they're like taking some of your ideas and then transforming them into something that is not really indicative of who you are. Right. Cause it could be some become something you're like, yeah, that's like not really what I was hearing at all. Right. Right. So I, so I have to, I mean, there's only like one handful of people that I can call on that I trust to, to do that process with. Cause it's a very, it's a very raw place, you know? Yeah. Because you're taking this, like, this is like something I made myself and someone yeah. tells you, Hey, that sucks. Kind of feels like they're saying, Hey, you suck. <laughs> right. Right. And I mean, you know, you already got to deal with that with the world, right. And their perceptions of your creativity, so while you're in that um, safe, creative zone, I think that's the place that we've got to really make sure that we're protected. And otherwise, what's, you know, uh, being created many times will get destroyed before the, the world has a chance to see it. And I think it's interesting that there's so many people who will say like, oh, this is good music and this is not good music. And but I feel like it really depends on the person because everyone has different intentions and different ideas. And I mean, there's some music I personally enjoy listening to more than others, but like. I can't personally say like, oh, this is the best piece ever written because it's just my perspective. I agree. I mean, I, you know, it's funny. Um, I had a couple interesting reviews of, of the album and uh, one of my friends is so it's so protective. And uh, she wrote me and she said, oh, my God, I can't believe this person, you know, gave you this review. Like, I know you've been working so hard at it. And I said, well, to be completely honest, I said, that's their opinion. And I take it fully as their opinion, you know, um, because to your point, not everybody's going to like it. Not everybody's going to love it. And being strong enough and committed enough to your vision and your journey to be OK with those that don't like it, you know, um, but not also live the whole project through their eyes. You know, just like an outfit like, I, you know, I love the shirt you have on, but there's somebody that may not. But it's not going to make you take the shirt off and put on something else like at the end of the day, you have to be committed to that journey. And I. I also to add as a caveat, I think that sometimes when people don't like what you do it's a true test to see, do you like what you do? You know, <laughs> so I like what I release. I, I, I believe in it. So whether somebody doesn't, it's neither here nor there for me. Do you think it took a while to develop that sort of confidence in yourself and in your music? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have to be confident, you know, somewhat. So there's two points I want to make about that. Yes, I'll answer that. Yes, it took me a while and it's still taking me a while. I'm I'm always a work in progress and process. Um, but someone told me, you know, many years ago, uh, that process of learning to love who you are has to first kind of, you know, get you, you've got to first kind of come to terms with that. So so there's sort of that process. Um, and then my you know, I, I'm a writer as well. You know, I, I actually just released a new book uh, a couple of days ago, but my writing coach um, really got on to me many years ago when I first started with her, I started writing blogs. And, uh, and I remember the like first or second piece I sent her, she like ripped it to shreds. And, uh, and I mean, I fired back at her, you know, like sent this, like, you know, like, like, uh, not nasty email, but like very coy, like email to her. And, uh, and she said, 
if you can't get used to my criticism, what makes you think you're going to get used to the criticism of people who are going to be reading this on social media? And I was like, whoa, she's like, so listen, you could you could not like my stuff, whatever. Like, but you need to get used to like this idea that people are going to critique what you do. And she was like, suck it up and get thick skin. <laughs> and so like and she was right. I mean, she was so right, because there would be times where I would, you know, I would release blogs and people would be like, oh, my God, I've been struggling. You know, I couldn't sleep the last three nights and your blog like helped me to find clarity and now I can sleep. And there'd be other people would be like, oh, you must have gone through a bad ba- breakup. And now you're just like, like publicly talking about your breakup, you know, and I had to be OK with both sides of that, you know, Um so, yeah, man, I, I'm OK with that. I think the confidence of being OK with like people not liking or, or liking it uh, is a, a manager told me many years ago. He said, you got to find your audience. And when you find your audience, he said, you got to give them everything you got and continue to cater to them so that that audience can expand. So when I meet somebody who's a critic and doesn't like what I, I created, I just say they're not part of my audience. But the reality is I do have an audience. And I have a fan base. So I'm just going to focus on them and expanding that and growing that. And those that don't like me or don't like what I created, God bless them. But the other part of that, I have to say, I don't know if you saw the recent um, interview over the whole like Naomi Osaka, uh, the uh, the tennis champ and, and her withdrawing from the French Open. And uh, and someone went to Venus Williams and said, you know, like, how do you deal with your critics? And I so love what she said. She said, well, what I think about is most of my critics can't do what I do. They can't play tennis. They can't do the things that I've been fortunate to do on the court. And they haven't been able to evolve in the ways I've evolved. So I don't take their criticism because they simply can't do what I do. And that's kind of another part of what I think about as well. It's like most of the people that are criticizing me can't play drums, can't be a band leader, haven't busted their butt to invest money and, and believe in my project, haven't you know sacrificed their entire life for their art. They're just sitting up there writing stuff. <laughs> so their opinion counts for very little to me because most of them can't do and haven't done what I've done. And not in an egotistical pr- perspective, but more of most of them have never released an album, which is why they're critiquing my album. Most of them have never actually written a book, which is why they're critiquing my book. You know, so I think we have to also give it some a smaller level of credence because most of them are exercising their creative freedom at, at your sacrifice. It's interesting how they can think they're such an expert, even though they haven't actually gone through the work to do it yet. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, that's I mean, that's that's the ego, right? Like the the human ego has to compromise with itself, right? Like when we can't be what we should be, then we have to come up with something that makes us feel temporarily satisfied. Um, And the way that we feel temporarily satisfied is by making someone else feel less than, which then helps us to deal with feeling less than, right? It's all semantics, right? And our own neuroses. I think it's just all lack of bravery, right? So instead of me saying, wow, like, Stephanie, I really dig your podcast. I'm going to like badmouth your podcast because I feel like I should do one and I'm not brave enough to like do all the work that you've done. So it's human ego and error, which all of which deserves no attention. (laughs) <laughs> so that's what I do is I start, you know, the best way to deal with a critic is to starve their att- starve them from what they want, which is attention. That's so true. You just don't have to listen to them. Yeah. Which, cause here's the thing. Most critics don't get an audience until you give them one, right. They, they've just been writing stuff all day long, but until you actually like 
speak their name and like talk about what they did or said and how it affected you. You're now giving them exactly why they're doing what they're doing because they don't have an audience. So they're basically trying to leverage what they don't have with what you have to gain an audience. So that's why when, you know, like I was in the middle of a, of a, uh, of a pot or, or a live I was doing the other day on Instagram and someone asked me about a critique from someone of my, my project. And they, they talked, they were like, oh, so what do you think? What do you, and I was like, I don't want to spend time talking about it because that's the whole reason why they did it so that it can have audience. So I don't want to give them what they want. Hey, it <laughs> was what it was. God bless them. Now let's talk about what I want to talk about because you're, you, you're part of my audience and I want to give my audience more of me and more of my art, which is why they're here. So instead of talking about someone who criticized my art, I prefer to talk about those that love my art so that what, I, what they love and what I love can expand. So I'd love to talk a little bit more about a couple of your other compositions on sure. here. Uh, Beardum X yeah. was the combination of the artist Romare Bearden and the civil rights activist Malcolm X. So yeah, what kind yes. of impact did those two individuals each have on you? Well, man, you know, first of all, I'm a black man and I'm a black man in America. And as a result of that, uh, being born in the South, you're 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 greeted with your blackness even before you even know what it is so to understand more about your blackness you have to understand what came before you and so Malcolm X was someone who I, I didn't really know much about before the Spike Lee film uh, but as I moved to New York City and was very involved in in Ab the Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem also involved in you know various projects in Harlem and in New York Malcolm X's name is something that you know, really resonated and still was very impactful. Um, so yeah, I just started researching him and, and, and same with Romare Bearden. I'm a huge art lover. I mean, I have art everywhere in my house and, you know, my studio, like I'm just, I'm very, I'm very driven by visual art. It's kind of what feeds me and gives me back that inspiration. So anyway, so there's an exhibit at the Schomburg, which is an incredible museum for, for black artifacts in Harlem on 135th street. And they had an exhibit that was sort of dual with Romare Bearden paintings. And there were letters from Malcolm X. So letters that he'd written to his wife, to his children. And so in the same hall, you had these two spirits, you know, converging. So I went and checked out the exhibit and I just fell in love with it. And it was great to see Malcolm X's words to his wife and his fears and his lamentations. And uh, and it was a, I was able to see the softer side of him. And then to see that sort of juxtaposed by Romare Bearden, it just the, the marriage of their two spirits and souls and, and creative work together just inspired me. And so I remember going and then like leaving the Schoenberg. And the minute I left, I was walking down the street of, of Malcolm X slash Lennox Avenue and the baseline came to me. Bo, bo, ba, bo, bo, dia, ba, bo, ba, bo, bo, dia, ba, do, ba, like that came to me. And so I went home and I pulled out my little MIDI, MIDI keyboard and I, you know, played it. And then I was like, well, that's a lot of activity in the bass. So like, what am I going to do as a melody? Because I felt the bass line was, was indeed a bass line, but it wasn't the melody. So then I came up with, you know, like, and 
So I've always loved playing with swing rhythms, but then infusing the swing rhythms with uh, straight apes. So dot, 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 and that's the swing, dot, 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 and straight ape, dot, 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 dot. So I love having the difference of bop, bo, dot, bo, dot, bo, dot, boom. Bop, bop, bo, bop, you know, bop, bop, bo, dot, do, dot. I really like that. So anyway, so um, I call, I think it was Micah Tone, and he helped me come up with the harmony, but we knew we wanted to keep it open, like like kind of a modal feel, you know, that sort of minor sound modal feel um and then you know the big band arrangement was actually pinned by diego rivera who's a a great colleague and friend of mine um so yeah man i mean it it was in my mind uh i create these imaginary worlds of these fictitious worlds and that was a world of you know romero and malcolm seeing their exhibit together and then walking down the streets of harlem that's that song was their that their anthem to me interesting how activism in music and the arts they're all they can all kind of connect and people have done that throughout history and what kind of impact do you think music can have on those kinds of movements well activism needs several things and advocacy right advocacy and activism needs an imprint and the way that you have an imprint is through a couple different ways um activism at best has a sound like if you think about the 1960s like the civil rights era you can't think about that era without hearing Sam Cooke's A Change Is Gonna Come or hearing, you know, uh, Nina Simone, you know, I wish I knew what it was like to be free or, you know, hearing James Brown, I'm black and I'm proud or, uh, you know, Aretha Franklin, you know, R-E-S-P-E-C-T or Bridge Over Troubled Water. I mean, I could I could go on and on and on and on and on with with anthems that that are juxtaposed with these incredible movements. Same thing with even what we're dealing with now with, you know, the LGBTQ uh, movement. You know, you think about uh, I'm coming out or you think about, you know, uh, celebrate or whatever, you know, every every movement has a sound. And so I think the idea of activism coupled with music, they have to to coexist because the music wouldn't be as impactful if it wasn't tied to a cause. And then the cause has to have a sound. Right. So I think they, they end up being intertwined uh, just by nature of they need each other to 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 amplify and to get larger. That's true. That's a really interesting thought. And I think, too, with music, I mean, I think it's so accessible to to yeah. everybody. They can all listen to that and get at least yeah. some portion in their head. Yeah. I mean, there's some people who never really subscribe to the civil rights movement, but they love Sam Cooke. You know, or there are people who didn't really understand what the big deal or hoopla was about, you know, race relationship, race relations in America, but they love Nina Simone. So sometimes you can engage someone in a cause or in a reality because you can hook them with another thing. And music is the biggest, um, the biggest power in that or the greatest power in that it can allow a lot of people to become very attached to you or to something Um, despite their own differences. 
going back to the group you have, your group also brings a lot of different people together. I liked how you had a mix of the people who have been in the business for a while and the people who are still up and coming. I mean, everyone was a killing player, but you know, some people have been at it for longer than others. So yeah. what motivated you to bring all these people together? Well, I think the, the the biggest thing that we can do in jazz right now is to have an intergenerational focus. I think that what we've lacked, unlike other industries, is that in our effort, which I agree with this effort before I express this point, but in our effort to keep the tradition of our heroes alive, you know, the spirit of the greats before us, we, we sometimes don't fully affirm and involve the younger generation. And so for me with this band, I wanted to make sure that we had my peers who are no longer the young guys, because we used to be the baby in the band. We're no longer the baby in the band. Um, so I wanted to have that, you know, uh, energy. But then I also wanted to have people who were like in the middle where they weren't the baby, but they weren't us. But they were like kind of middle, you know, of the road. Then I wanted some babies in the band, because I think the best of everything and anything is when you have all voices represented. And so when you've got children, you know, you know, teens, you've got you know, young adults, adults you know, seniors, like all of that, you need the continuum because that's life. So yeah, I wanted that in my band reflected. And I think that's the power uh, of our band. And again, um, that was kind of what Mike Dees and I um, came up with as well, like, because he and I now are, well, he's a professor. I'm a small ensemble director at Juilliard. He's a professor at MSU. And we wanted a place that our students could come and be part of and grow because there's a lot of things in jazz that you're not going to learn in a classroom. You're going to learn it um, by someone teaching you via the oral tradition of just sitting next to someone playing their butt off and, and that rubs off on you sonically. So that's what we wanted to, to be intent about. And that's what we created. Uh, but I, but I really think we need to do a better job of that in, in our industry and in our world, us coming together, not even just racially um, and, and even in how we identify as, as beings, but then also intergenerationally, I think, because we can learn different things from different eras. Top of Sugar Hill to Riverside Drive. Malcolm X down to Harlem River Drive. All our dudes in history rooted deep inside. Take me uptown. Sunday morning, everybody's in their prime. After church, we smile and laugh, and then we die. I liked how you included tunes and arrangements by the band members, too. I thought yeah. that was a great way to include everybody in there. Yeah, I mean, someone told me a long time ago, you know, like, you don't have to be great at everything, you know? So I, I, I think that I'm really fortunate to have talent as a drummer. I also think that I'm fortunate to have talent as a band leader, but I'm not in my opinion, the most gifted arranger or composer, but I have gifted arranger and composers in my band. And the, the way to be the best at something is to have the best surrounding you. So I'm fortunate, you know, I can't write like Diego Rivera. I can't compose and arrange like Michael Dees or Danny Giannacucci. It's just not, it wasn't in the cards for me, but I don't need to because I have them in my band. <laughs> so, you know, I find that when you realize what you're not good at, surround yourself with those that are good at it. And then that's one less thing that you got to figure out how to be good at. You can just go be good at what you're already organically, you know, uh, been blessed to be uh, great at. And then you can let other people be organically great at what they've been blessed to be great at. Yeah, you don't have to be superhuman. 
You don't, because here's the thing. You're not going to be either way, right? Like, there, you, you can't be... Uh, you, you can't be all things to all people. And I, I know for me, my career and my life got a lot easier when I started acknowledging that and not being afraid to acknowledge that. And so now I just surround myself with an unbelievable team, you know, like a team of like really gifted people that are great at things that I'm weak at. released your book that you mentioned a little bit earlier um the musician's career guide turning your talent into sustained success yep here so, it is right here yeah so i'd love if you could tell me a bit about like an overview of the book and like why there's these things you need to know about music and business and career that you may not learn in school necessarily so i'll just tell you i wrote the book that um that i wanted for myself when i was coming up on the scene, um, there were all these questions, right? Like, you know, uh, I'm going to play a gig. How much do I charge? Or like, what's etiquette? Or, you know, what is, how, like, if, I, if I'm leading a band, how do I know what to pay them? Like, how, you know, if I want to, if I want to record a record, how do I record a record? How do I do it well? Like there were just, at, at each stage of, uh, stage of my career, there were all these questions. And so I'm very inquisitive. And uh, and and I, I love asking questions, even now, like if you put me like if I run into you at a bar, like I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions. Um, so nobody wanted to answer the questions, you know, like even my 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 uh, those that came before me. It was like this mysterious thing, particularly in jazz, you know, and the classic jazz phrase is, oh, you'll figure it out. And uh, I just didn't think that was was acceptable. And so then. I get into Juilliard. I take a music business class that was created by, for classical students. Uh, same thing. They, they basically told me to work on a headshot and a bio and a cover letter for an orchestra. And I was like, hey, I'm not going to be applying for orchestras. They're like, oh, OK, we'll get back to you. Then the other music business class that were for jazz musicians uh, was actually taught by one of my mentors, who's incredible. Uh, but his focus was on the, the recording industry and publishing and licensing deals and, and mechanical royalties and all that. And within that year, the iPod existed uh, and completely changed the entire industry. Napster, you know, was existing then as well. So I found that like every time we talked about music business, we would talk about these antiquated methods or these antiquated in, you know, institutions within the music industry that were dying like as we were sitting there talking about them. So I was like, where's that book? And so every time I would talk to people about it, everybody just like shunned it. So I was like, you know, man, like we need to know, like, and kind of have a code of ethics behind this music scene. And I think it's complete bullshit that we don't want to talk about it. It's kind of like, you know, the parents who don't want to tell the kids like what's really going on. Right. Like, so anyway, so I started writing this book. I started journaling about things that I wanted to know. Then as I got my own experience, I started talking to various uh, band leaders and different people in the industry about stuff, and they started giving me advice. Uh, and so I started that when I graduated from college about 2006, kept this journal. And then uh, when I left Christian McBride's band, I had a meeting at Chamber Music America, and they were like, so what now? And I was like, 
you know, told them about a bunch of different stuff I wanted to do. And I mentioned about this journal that I've been working on. And they were like, Ulysses, you should really develop that. And so I said, okay, cool. So I started doing lectures. Like when people would ask me to come in and do drum master classes, I would then like have a 10 or 15 minute little like um, sort of presentation about music business and music entrepreneurship. And so I just kept developing that work and developing it. Um, and then, you know, now I'm a creative entrepreneur. I've lectured at probably over 50, 60 universities across the world. And I now have this book and, and it's really a labor of love because I think that nobody answers the question of, all right, your kid, you, you know, a kid decides to love music and take formal lessons. Now what do they go to college? If they go to college, how do they pick the right college or what if they, they want to go to college, but they don't want to do it full time, but then they want, you know, to have some connection with it. Like nobody can answer those questions. And so what my book is, is a narrative and is by no means answers all those questions, but I think it gives solutions and anecdotes that can help you find what your answer can be. And at least it opens up the conversation and that, that I'm incredibly excited about. So yeah, that's the book. And the idea of sustainable or sustained success really boils down to the last part of the book that really talks about art and survival and how to protect your talent. Um, and also, you know, really understanding things like PR, manage, you know, having a manager, manager or agent or whatever. And also knowing like, is that something you need? Because you kind of think you have a lot of musicians, or I should clarify, you have a lot of musicians who think they should have all these different people in their lives or this team, and not everybody needs that. And then there's some musicians who uh, become lovers of the music, but they use that and leverage it to do something altogether different. And where's the story for that? Because we don't want to talk about that. We don't want to talk about a lot of great musicians who are out there and they're able to supplement their incomes with other things that they're doing. So again, I just feel like we need to talk about all the possibilities and then even encourage people to create new possibilities um, and, and do what one of my friends talks about uh, that comes from the great Charles Lloyd, which is learning how to endow our creativity, um, which is definitely the stage that we're living in. I think that's great because like you said, there's so many questions about going into the music business that a lot of times like no one really talks about. Like I majored in music in college and then some of those questions you just asked, I was like, yeah, I don't think I ever had a class or anything that people talked about that kind of stuff. It was just, you know, a lot about the music, but there's a whole other side to it that you need to know about. Yeah, and then the last piece I wanna mention is what I think is really impactful is I am a practicing artist talking about business. And when I did my research, you know, like part of, you know, being published is, you know, developing a book proposal. And then part of a book proposal is that you have to talk about competing products that are out there or books that, that already exist around your subject matter. And it was crazy to me how all the books that were existing, none of them were by practicing artists. They were all by people who either had had never been able to successfully be an artist or by people who kind of were not in the same genre of being a practicing artist or they had never gone to college for music. Right. So you had all these people speaking as experts who had never done it. And so a big part of to me, what I think, you know, is exciting people like I, I've been getting messages every day and all day that's exciting people about this book is that it's coming from a guy that they have seen build a career and who's continuing to build a career. So like, I'm not somebody that's completely detached, you know, someone who's, you know, like, like a Beyonce, right? Like who is so successful, 
um, and has an engine behind her. Nobody really knows how that happened, but I'm still there. Like you can still talk to me and, and, and access me or have access to me. Um, so I think nobody's really taking the time to write that story from that position. So I think that's also what's very appealing to people about it. All right. Well, that'll wrap it up for today, but thank you so much. It's been great learning more about you and your career, your music. So thank you so much. It's been great. Thank you, Stephanie. I'm honored and I appreciate you reaching out and wanting to interview me and talk about the book and the music soul conversation. So I appreciate you. We've been listening to an interview with drummer Ulysses Owens Jr. about his latest album, Soul Conversations. If you like what you heard, you can find the full album anywhere you stream music. You can also find a link to it on our website, bitesizejazz.com. And if you particularly enjoyed this episode, feel free to share about it on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Tag us in it, and we'll be happy to share it too. I'm Stephanie Steele. Thanks for listening to Bite Size Jazz.